Today, we're honored to be speaking with a woman who knows a whole lot about leadership in uncertain times. Unknowingly, Linda Vale, director of the Ingham County Health Department, spent her career preparing to lead our community through the largest public health crisis that we've known, COVID-19. Join us as we talk about what microbiology, marathons, and mental strength have to do with keeping our community healthy and safe while leading through a crisis. The Speakeasy Podcast, real talk about leadership and sanity in the creative industry. I'm Karen Steffel. And I'm Jen Estel. Managing creativity and business, we probably have an opinion on that. No prohibitions. Clearly, we have cocktails. It's a jack honey smash. Jen, what's in it? Actually, it's delightfully simple, which makes me really happy. So two ounces of Jack Daniels Tennessee Honey, which was highly recommended by our friend Linda, mint leaves, lemon juice, simple syrup, and crushed ice. So it's a it's a great drink to make without a ton of ingredients, and I love it. Now you know what to do with your extra mint. Right. And it's called Smash because you sort of shake it with the crushed ice and it'll break up the mint leaves, which will help you get out some aggression maybe while you're making your drink. <laughs> You know, Linda's been in public health for um, for nearly 20 years, but you have a background in research and microbiology. Tell us the, the highlights of your career, Linda. Oh, wow. Well, I'm going to um, date myself here, and, and it's about a 40 years worth of career at this point in time. So, um, you know, I've been a public health official. Well, I've been a public health officer for, for going on 15 years now. So, and, and going on 19 years in public health. Um, but before that, I did. I was a biomedical researcher. Um, I worked for what was the Upjohn Company and became Pharmacia and became um, Pfizer. Um, I did research in everything from infectious disease genomics to cancer to central nervous systems, Parkinson's and schizophrenia, um, vascular biology, cardiovascular diabetes, pretty much across the board during my career. Um, but I started at the University of Georgia, which is where I um, went to school, got my undergraduate degree in microbiology, went to graduate school in microbiology. So my background really is infectious diseases, um, immunology, that sort of thing. I just kind of kind of evolved into becoming a, a molecular biologist by the time I um, left uh, what was then pharmacy and acquired by Pfizer and started working for the Kalamazoo County Health Department. Um, I started as a very entry-level coordinator position. And again, I guess I staged myself up for this because my job was emergency preparedness, bioterrorism preparedness, writing plans to, uh, to get us through pandemics and mass vaccination and all of those things and walking around and going to meetings and conferences and things like that and talking to people about the fact that on average we have three substantial pandemics a century and we were overdue for a really big one. And I think uh, a lot of people thought H1N1 was it and thought, okay, we got through that. These public health people mm. exaggerated. And in the back of our minds, we were like, no, no, we really need to stay ready. And uh, to some extent, we did not. I find that also interesting. I guess as an Ingham County resident, I'm very thankful that you are as prepared as you were and you have the background that you do. How lucky are we? But in your heart, did you know this was coming at some point? Um, we have been saying for 20 years that this was coming. You know, in your heart, you know, Honestly, in the heart, even as a public health official, you hoped that H1N1 was it because, you know, while almost a billion people worldwide ended up with H1N1, it was not a high mortality rate. So we didn't lose a lot of people. It wasn't the devastation that we're seeing right now. And uh, 
you know, in the back of our minds, it's like, is there going to be a smallpox release that we're going to have to respond to? Is there going to be, you know, Ebola kind of virus that is very lethal, that escapes and we, and we have to deal with. Um, but there are some things that viruses do that kind of naturally keep themselves from doing that. And that is that they actually require your human body in order to replicate. They don't do it on their own like bacteria do. So they just inject some nucleic acid into your cells and use all your machinery to make more of themselves. And then they need to find somebody else. And if they're actually too lethal, they kill their host too frequently and they have no place to go. So they got to find that sweet spot right in the middle. And we landed it. Yeah, we sure did. When did you have your your first COVID kind of oh shit moment? Like when did you know? I mean, it had to have been before Italy, right? When did you know that we were really going to have to brace ourselves? January of 2020, you know. Before oh, it was here. Yeah. So when you see basically all of the, the ingredients for the formula of a pandemic start to play out very quickly, which is one, it has to be a novel virus. It has to be a virus that has never infected the human body before. That doesn't mean that it didn't exist in an animal somewhere. And typically that is where they come from. They jump from an animal to a human. In general, diseases, viruses, and bacteria don't infect both animals and humans. There are some that do. They're called zoonotic, which means they can infect a horse and a human. And, you know, but a lot of diseases just stay kind of within their, within their space and infect a species or, or, or a specific kind of people or animals. And when it jumps and then in the human body becomes easily transmissible, then you've got the first two pieces of that formula. It's novel, and it is going from person to person to person in China fast. And we are so globalized now that the idea of locking that down in China without it spreading as far as fast as it was spreading the way it was, was, was just not very likely. Yeah. But you already had those emergency preparedness plans. You had written them in Kalamazoo. I'm sure that you had uh, played a, a big role in making sure that Ingham County's was uh, locked up tight. So... How did you train your team to be prepared the way that you knew we needed to be prepared? Well, all you can do is get as best prepared as you can because nobody knows. I mean, even though you see what's coming, you really, I mean, every step of the way, it's like, wow, I didn't see that coming. There were a lot of I didn't see that coming moments during this pandemic. Um, so our staff are trained in emergency response as a part of annual training. We have to take courses that are um, FEMA, Federal Emergency, you know, the, the Emergency Management Association, um, so that we know how to do, you know, basically emergency leadership and response, not typical organization leadership and, and response. And you have to break down those, those you know, uh, walls for that. So um, our staff are trained. Uh, we have an emergency preparedness coordinator who's wonderful, and she maintains all of these plans, and we just needed to get them out and do what we've been trained to do. And then at the same time, those plans cannot accommodate every single nuance and situation and thing that goes sideways over here or here, and then you just have to adjust as you go. And the plans don't accommodate for human behavior. I mean, to a certain extent, of course, you can accommodate for human behavior, but potentially this time around, we got a bit of a curveball with people's response to the situation. Uh, yeah, we had a big curveball with that one, because all of those plans were really written on the basis of we're going to have this emergency. We're going to need to mass vaccinate everybody or we're going to need to give everybody, you know, prophylactic medications if it was bacterial and that we would just do that. Um, I don't think the plans were written with what do we do if there's massive resistance and politicization to the field of public health and the work of public health, which really is about protecting the health of our communities 
saving lives. And I've said it a few times, and I'll say it again, there's no place for politics in that. Yeah, the COVID doesn't care who you voted for. No, it does not. It is not protecting you based on who you voted for. When when you got confirmation of, um, or suspected confirmation before there were tests of COVID being in Ingham County, did you have in your mind how long our fight was going to last? How Did you think it was going to be shorter than it has been? I absolutely did. <laughs> uh, I think some of it was just wishful thinking because my medical director, um, Dr. Shoenka, who is just wonderful and has been just absolutely wonderful to work with. She's, you know, we're blessed. She's got an infectious disease certification. So we had an infectious disease doctor who was also um, had a preventive medicine residency and certification. So she's board certified in internal medicine, infectious diseases, and preventive medicine. And um, I had a trip to Morocco planned in September of 2020. <laughs> and it so probably took me until the... It probably took me until the end of June or July of 2020 to admit that that was not going to happen. Mm-hmm. I literally spent March, April, May, most of June going, well, it could still happen. And she'd just laugh at me. <laughs> so it's possible. And then, yeah, eventually it did. The, the, the company canceled it. So sure. the airlines canceled the flights. The company canceled the, the hotel rooms and all of that. And so there you go. But I think by... Certainly by September, when we saw that huge um, surge in cases surrounding MSU's return to campus, and then the fall, it, you know, it's we knew we had a long road in front of us. Then we got a vaccine, and we could put an end to it, but we need people to get vaccinated, plain and simple. Yeah, we sure do. Um, we absolutely need to be able to communicate with the continued vaccine-hesitant and understand that that personal freedom that is so desired and valued that you actually do get more personal freedom by being vaccinated. <laughs> yeah. This is the part that I find so interesting and sort of talking to you a bit about that timeline and the response. And I, I think where I became thoroughly enamored was, was what I perceived as the most excellent rollout of vaccination problem solving that you could see anywhere. Mm-hmm. in our county. And so I, I'd like to talk a little bit about that. But I also, this is a lot of months to be constantly on and constantly nurturing your staff and communicating with the public and the million things you probably had to do. And so this is a part I think is yeah so interesting. That was my next question too, was about the mental stamina that's really required to to see this through. I, you know, most of us are mystified ourselves with where we come up with the stamina to keep going, quite honestly. And and some of us have not. You see health officials that have been fired, resigned, or retired during the middle of a pandemic. So And with PTSD. And with PST, PTSD. Many, many, many of us. And death threats. And death threats. Yes. All of those things. All of those things happen. And PTSD with it is very real. Um, and that's one of probably one of the hardest things is trying to come back down. And of course, I was just trying to come back down, and and now we're now it's just almost back full speed ahead. But uh, you know, I, I don't know it. It you know, it's your job, and if you're passionate about your work, you know it's there to do. So it's not something that I just walk away from at the end of the day because 
you know, it's been that many hours and it's time to stop. This is my responsibility. It is what I was appointed by the state to do in this community. It is what these board of commissioners hired me to do. There is state level authority independently in a health officer to do the right thing and protect the community, to issue epidemic orders, imminent danger orders, orders to abate nuisances like meth houses. We do that. We do that all the time. And that is, that is what we're supposed to be doing. So, you know, it is a vocation um, for sure, and it is a passion, um, and it is also a job. And uh, I, I just keep referring back to the fact that I, I don't know what it is that keeps me going other than I don't have small children at home, so I don't have to figure out boundaries as much as a lot of people. <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, well, I'm boundaryless, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. I'll call people at all times of the, the evening and weekends and then go, oh, sorry, I don't have boundaries anymore. Um, when it comes to work, because I, I don't. Um, but I, I was a runner. I started running when I was 30. And by the time um, I was 37 or 38, I'd started running longer and longer distances. I had said I would never run a marathon, that that was just ridiculous. And then I got faster and I could go longer. And finally, I ran the, um, the Riverbank Run in Grand Rapids, which is a 25K, so 15 and a half miles. I finished it with energy to go. I was like, oh, I guess I could do a marathon. And that's when I started training for marathons. And so I have run marathons, and they truly do take it all out of you. I don't know anybody that finishes like I did the Riverbank Run and feels like, wow, I could keep going. It's usually, oh, my gosh, thank God I can stop now. So every single bit of your brain and your body at some point in that marathon tries to get you to stop. <laughs> it's like your, your mind says, I can't. Your body is just not anymore, and you have to keep willing it to go and you have to keep overcoming that mental mm-hmm. I can't and you cross that finish line and, and you've trained too hard and too long to not cross that finish line even if you have to walk to cross that finish line um, you get injured during the middle one and you know dropping out of a marathon is a pretty rare thing it happens but man you put a lot of work into getting ready for a marathon to let just the, the mental I can't anymore keep you from finishing so it's that it's that mental grit, that mental strength, really, that you bring to part of one of your characteristics that makes you a successful leader in this crisis is that mental toughness. I guess so. Like I said, I don't know what it is. All I can do is think back to marathon days and realizing that, you know, that is a moment that you just sit there and just, you just feel like you just can't anymore. Everything is just, just gone. You know, I, I remember finishing my first marathon. And um, you get to the end, and you got a chip on your shoe. So now you got to bend over there and untie. This is before they had people at the end doing it for you. It's like, oh, my gosh, I've got to get down there and take this chip off my shoe. So I got that done. And then I rounded through the, you know, the typical end of race, you know, food and water and stuff like that. And I picked up a bagel. And I, I took a bite of this bagel, and I started to chew it. And I quickly spit it out because I was too tired to chew. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> So on the scale of marathoning, how tired did the pandemic make you? <laughs> how many bagels did you spit out? I keep spitting out bagels, I tell you. Um, you know, we thought we were getting, you know, close to that, <laughs> you know, beyond the 21 mile mark where you tend to kind of hit the wall and keep going, but you know, that finish line is there. And then it feels like they kind of took it away again. So I think I'm running an ultra marathon at this point in time, which those are like 50, 100 miles. I don't know, which I never thought was sane. <laughs> that I was never going to do. It's like 24 is fine. 20, 24, yeah. 
26. 26.2 is fine. Thank you very much. I have also done a few triathlons, um, but an Ironman triathlon is also something that was like, I will never be able to do that because that is like two miles of swimming and I mean, like 40 miles of biking followed by a full marathon, which will take it out of you all in its own. Mm -hmm. So I'm like doing an ultra marathon or an, or an, or a, an Ironman triathlon that I long ago decided was not something that I was going to do, nor did it seem like the same thing to be doing, but I'm doing it. <laughs> yeah. And except for the difference, the difference between those races and what you're going through is that nobody has told you where the finish line is. Yes. And it keeps moving. Well, and on top of that, you, you have to keep yourself moving. You are in charge. You are, you are the leader, but you also have to keep your staff moving and motivated and you still have to keep public opinion moving forward and keep people informed. So you have a half a dozen jobs and none of them get to stop until this is over. Thanks for making that very clear to me. <laughs> yes, that is all true. <laughs> I have lots of different jobs and, and I can't, I can't put any of them aside until this is over. You know, I, I, I've heard many people in leadership and in different roles talk, stop, they have stopped using the phrase post-COVID because I think general scientific community opinion is that there isn't post-COVID, that we're going to be, we're just going to be living with COVID and we're going to be living differently. What, what's your crystal ball say? Well, you know, it is to be expected, just like H H1N1 did not go away. H1N1 is our common circulating flu strain now. It is novel at first, so it's a pandemic, and then it becomes endemic, which means we see it, it's, it happens. Bubonic plague is still endemic in parts of the Southwest and in other parts of the world. So um, that's what endemic means. And then when a disease is endemic, like it is, it exists within our society. That's all we're saying. Very few diseases have been eradicated, smallpox, and I think we got there with polio recently. Um, so, or maybe at least in the United States. Um, that's where we expect it to go, into that realm of it exists. It shouldn't happen very frequently. We should see outbreaks and things that we need to control, but not massive, you know, community-wide surges and large-scale transmission. Um, this vaccine is effective enough that if enough of us get vaccinated, it won't be like just the flu every year. And it's like, well, what's the point? It's just going to you know, come around every year. We're going to need a shot and, you know, that sort of thing. It's, it's, it has the potential to be better than that um, scientifically. When you combine a 95% effective vaccine with enough people vaccinated, that pretty much puts the lid on things. That is the That's, most hopeful thing I've heard in a long time. I have almost said that exact <laughs> sentence, Jen. Yes. But, but keep in mind, that doesn't mean you won't hear of people that got COVID. But you shouldn't hear of massive amounts of people that get COVID. You hear about an outbreak in a school, you know, an outbreak, you know, things that are manageable for us to contain. This is, that's the other problem with this is that, you know, you expect public health measures to be able to contain it. When community transmission is just high and widespread, it's very difficult to quarantine and isolate your way out of it. It's, a, it's quite a challenge. Well, and just like it's a challenge, you can't just get herd immunity um, because <laughs> the numbers are so rough. So it has to be done through vaccinations. Mm -hmm. It is. It is. Uh, and it's, and it's possible. I think it's possible, but we, we need to accept that it's possible. We need to know that it's possible. I hear from lots of people. It's like, well, you know, we talk about herd immunity. We're just never going to get any there anyway, because 
you know, like the flu virus, it's going to show that it's going to mutate and we'll just, you know, be dealing with this forever. It's like, well, yes and no. If you understand some molecular biology, I can tell you why that isn't necessarily true, both between the vaccine and how it's designed, how effective it is and what herd immunity means. We just have to, we just have to get there. Yeah. I have a question for you that I find so fascinating. I wonder if this moment is going to inspire more people to join in the fight toward public health, bring people into your industry. And I also wonder, you know, you made the you made a distinct move from private industry into public health, which is a brave and unique decision for many people. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about public health as a place to spend your career, what you think about people who might be coming into the field, what made you decide to serve? Those are great questions. Wow. So one, public health is, is just absolutely the best work I've ever done. I mean, I've done some pretty cool things, you know, um, and uh, it's very rewarding work. Um, it's very inspirational. People are very passionate because it's really mission driven. Um, it's very much about being mission driven or, you know, in businesses and things like that. It's like, I know what is a mission Even in academics when I was doing research there, the mission was to, you know, do things really well and write papers and get them published. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, your, that's kind of your mission. Um, so, but I think, you know, I would encourage people to, to one, know that about public health and two, I think right now is a really hard time to look at public health and say, yep, that's what I want to do because we're getting mm -hmm. beat up and tore up and demoralized and mm -hmm. disrespected and undermined and so many things. But if you look at that right now, I don't know how excited somebody's going to be to come and do my job, but this will pass. And hopefully it will in some, you know, groups create some respect and some knowledge about what it is that public health does. Because when we silently are in the backgrounds doing the work that we do every day, bad stuff doesn't happen. That's why you don't know about us, because we do our jobs every day. We control outbreaks. We make sure restaurants um, are cooking food that is safe for you. We make sure you have safe water. We make sure you have safe, you know, disposal of, you know, waste. You know, if you have a septic tank instead of the sewer system, we make sure that houses comply with, you know, things like you have to have electricity or running water or else it's going to be condemned. We are part of originally, you know, back in the day of public health, advocating for things like child labor laws. Um, workplace safety standards, those sorts of things. That was the work of public health in the early 1900s. Um, and the work of public health in the 1900s expanded life expectancy. So in the 1900s, life expectancy increased by 30 years. Now we know that lots of incredibly fancy stuff happened in medicine. Fancy surgeries, fancy machines, fancy you know, diagnostic things that can see all these things in your body. But 25 of those 30 years is attributable to public health. Things like vaccinations. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's a lot. I think that's a really, really important period to put on the end of a sentence is that the things that we take for granted, there were quiet people doing the work behind the scenes to make it happen. And we say that about ourselves all the time. We work and work and work in the background, and the reason you don't know who we are and what we do is because we are keeping bad stuff from happening all the time. But um, as far as how I well, got we know who you are now. Yes. 
that's quite the and resume you know point right there. Yeah, so... Um, keeping bad stuff from happening all the time. Keeping bad stuff from happening all the time. That's our that's a tagline, right? Um, so I got into public health a little accidentally, quite honestly. So I was working in the laboratory. I am a science geek through and through, which is probably some of the reason I can just talk about, you know, all kinds of different things. And my head noodles around data and ideas all the time. And then I call my medical director and it's like, oh, did you see this? Have you thought about this? What do you think? You know, like I just read this study and... <laughs> Because in my spare time, I would research um, to make sure that I knew what I was talking about the next day, what little spare time I had, which kept me working for way too many hours. But um, so so I'm doing research and and somehow or another, I just know that I need to do something different. You know, I feel I think I'm that, first of all, I'm an extrovert, probably. And really, laboratories are better for introverts because you're in a lab all day long, one room, three or four people. Most of them don't talk to you because they're not extroverts and then you go looking for people who are chatty and things like that and it's like so I had my highs and lows through it because we were also doing things like cloning and discovering things and you know great science cool stuff that was you know fun and interesting to do so I did a lot of community work so I was um, the, the board chair of the board president for the YWCA in Kalamazoo I was on the Planned Parenthood board of directors in Kalamazoo for a time um, and I, I got involved and and that kind of, you know, fed me, but it was always outside my work. So the Upjohn company paid 75% of your tuition if you wanted to go to school. So I decided, well, I'm just going to go get, you know, a graduate degree in like health administration or something like that. So I can get into, you know, something that's more out there in administration, interacting with different people. I really thought what I was going to do was get into project management with the company which is where they kind of coordinate all of these drug trials and things like that and massive teams and bringing everything together. And so I applied for a few of those jobs after I finished my master's degree, which didn't end up being in public health. It ended up being in public administration with a public health concentration. And um, so then all of a sudden Pfizer acquires Pharmacia and I didn't have a job. I was one of the first to get laid off. So in July of 2002, I was laid off. I got divorced in 2001, and I had children that were still young enough that I was getting child support. So I was living on unemployment and child support for a short period of time, thinking I can just barely make ends meet on this. And I was looking to see, because the only thing I'd ever done was science, bench research. So that was the sure thing for me, go get a job doing that. I didn't want to take my kids too far away so that they couldn't visit their dad regularly and maintain that relationship. So that was a struggle because most scientific research in pharmaceutical companies meant leaving Michigan. I did, you know, look at University of Michigan lab tech jobs, which I was overqualified for, but nonetheless did. And then I saw this position at the Kalamazoo Health Department that's like, you need to know infectious diseases. Got that. You need to know program planning administration. Well, I got a degree in that. I'm, I bet I can do it, right? <laughs> and so I applied for it and I got that job. So from July of 2002, until November of 2002, I was unemployed. And then I started working at very much an entry level. It's like this was just enough to keep me from having to sell my house or move my kids. And so that was November of 2002. I'd never worked in public health a day in my life. And April of 2007, I was their health officer. Wow. <laughs> that is such an interesting story. And it makes me want to ask you another half hour worth of questions about careers and parenting and leadership, but we'll save that for the next podcast, I think. There you go. That's an amazing I, twist. It, it is amazing twist. And I think it, it goes back to that 
mental toughness and grit? I will tell you that that along the way, it didn't just miraculously happen to me. I was partially in the right place at the right time. A longtime health officer retired after 25 years. His deputy took over. His deputy was just overwhelmed with the job. It stressed him to no end. And he ended up retiring after 18 months and a health issue that happened to him. And, you know, I had been at the point where it's like, I didn't see where I was going to grow within the organization. So I had gone to him and said, I'm applying for health officer jobs in other counties because I don't see anywhere for me to go here. And he was like, <laughs> oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. I eliminated that deputy position. How about I recreate it and we'll put you in it? I'm like, okay, I can, I can deal with that. So he did. So I advocated for myself. I did. I advocated for myself. I wasn't mean about it or anything. I said, this, there's no place for me to grow here. So I'm applying. I, I was a finalist for a health officer job somewhere else in the state. I was a finalist for a health officer job in Wisconsin at the time. And he was like, you know, just hold on. So that's what happened. And then he retired. And when he retired, I went to my county administration and I said, give me a chance. Yeah. Don't just post this job and go searching for somebody. Give me a chance. Make me the interim for like six months. Let me try. Like, well, you know, no, we needed this, we needed that. You know, so it was a back and forth for a few days until my county administrator looked at me and said, you know what? We just made all department heads at will in the county. This is where most all the employees in Kalamazoo County were for cause. But they made department heads at will for a reason. It was an issue with, with a department head. So he's like, I don't have to make you interim. I can just give you the job. And if it doesn't work, then you can just be gone. Which means my job, had I been an interim, right, if you're interim, you get to hold on to the job that you did have, and you can go crawling back to it if it doesn't work. I was like, okay. And then I proceeded to go back to my office and probably panic and think, oh, my God, my blood pressure is probably soaring. What in the heck do I, what have I done? So I had some panic moments early on, but off we went. And it has, that is, that's where I've been ever since. And that's how I got here. Well, at and advocating for yourself is so important and something that um, as professionals, it's not easy to do when you're a young professional. Um, it's not easy to do when you're a woman all the time. And so, um, but taking those chances are, it's the, the reward far outweighs the risk. I tell that to young women who um, come into, you know, university students and stuff like that. They get assignments, they come in, they have to talk to me and ask questions. And I tell them all the time, go claim it. You need to be willing to go claim it. So you're a young woman and the world doesn't, the world doesn't necessarily want you to do that, but you can. On that note. (laughs) So impressive. So impressive. (laughs) Thank you, Linda. So many, so many good nuggets. Really appreciate you sharing with us. I hope you enjoyed your, 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 um, your Jack honey smash. Delicious. (laughs) Thank you for, for following my story about Jack Daniels honey and uh, crafting a, crafting a brand new cocktail in honor of that. So I appreciate it. That's right. Well, cheers. Thank you. And thank you for um, doing your best to keep us safe. It's a big deal. Yeah. Thanks for ser- for your service over these last two years nearly. Yeah. One quick question, though. If you have a crystal ball into 2022, how will we be doing? Um, kind of make it through the fall first. <laughs> that... that that crystal ball has unfortunately some what ifs in it, you know, some forks in the road. Are we going this way? Or are we going that way? So, um, 2022 with an increase in vaccination rates, um, with people kind of getting on board with the fact after a scare from this, you know, surge that we're going through right now that they need to vaccinate with 
businesses starting to say, you know what, we're going to require proof of vaccination or a negative COVID test. You can't fly without it. You can't go to certain bars and restaurants without it. You can't go to that music festival or that concert without it. Um, so you start to see that happening, and that will impact vaccination rates. You see university and colleges requiring it. That will impact vaccination rates. If that continues and continues fairly rapidly, then we should move into 2022 with the downside of whatever surge we're going to see in the fall, and then hopefully we'll get into that kind of normal zone of this being endemic, us largely being vaccinated against us and us seeing outbreaks and things like that that we can control. The other fork in the road, unfortunately, is that we drag this on for too long and eventually we have a variant that escapes the vaccine as well as anybody's supposed natural immunity, which there is some of, but the vaccine itself is more robust and better protective and more likely to protect you against variants. Um, and, and that means that we that we've fortunately we've got a we've got a, a model a template for the vaccine they can you know crank out a, one that matches a strain fairly quickly just like they do with flu but then we're going to be back at vaccinating everybody and all of that sort of stuff and that that's going to be hard you know we don't need to go through cycles and cycles of that and then the other unfortunate i think i have a trident now fork in the road is that we do okay here in the united states we get to that place in the united states but look at what's going on in the rest of the world where they don't have an abundance of vaccine like we are sitting here with right now. We are sitting here with an abundance of vaccine ready for every single person in this country to get it if they want to. And we have places in this world that do not have that vaccine, desperately want it, would do just about anything for it, and are looking at disease rates and things like that. We have second and third world countries where this disease is going to be a problem for a while. And then we're going to have to keep figure out how in the process of our very global society, travel and international commerce and all that, how to keep it from coming back here and becoming a problem. Because if it stays out there, then those mutants are still going to, those variants are going to still still happen and we're going to have to deal with it. So there you go. Those are your three options. Choose wisely. <laughs> it's my new mantra these days. This is what you should do. I'm going to tell you, this is what you should do. Now I need you to choose wisely. That's right. Well, thank you. Thanks for your wisdom. Really appreciate that. Thanks. Linda, it was great to talk to you and uh, keep it up. We're cheering for you. That's right. Thank you so much. It was, it was great to talk to both of you, and it's always nice to identify some of the, 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 cheer, the cheerleaders or the cheer people out there. So I like, I like having my tribe of people that I know are there for me. So thank you so very much for that. Our pleasure. We've talked a number of times over the last year about the process of Jen and I buying our own separate commercial spaces. Our motivation and goals were different, and we both got what we wanted. In Jen's case, she's restoring a beautiful historic building, invigorating a part of her downtown by creating pop-up summer concerts and a beautiful place for object-based art to be shared with the community. Now that she's more than six months in, I thought it would be great to check in on lessons learned. And that's what we're talking about next time.